Welcome back to How I Deal, where we discuss past closed, won, and lost deals, how they played out that way, and provide some hopefully useful, actionable sales tips that you can use in your deals today. My name is Taylor Dollum, full cycle account executive turned content guy, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Junior, the real sales brain here at Pickle. What's up, June? Good, dude. On to episode 14. Super ready for this conversation. Just a quick heads up to the uh, listeners. This deal is intense. Really pay attention. Give it a second listen. We're going to try to take it pretty slow. Yes, we want to make sure we're diving deep. And just to refresh on this conversation in case you're listening for the first time or haven't listened for a few episodes. Each conversation, we chat through a single past deal. We want to keep all names, places, anonymized, fictionalized. Uh, That way, like I said, we can dive really deep. And that's what we want to do on this episode. Uh, So all the way from the first time this prospect was encountered, uh, whether through a targeted list, your your LinkedIn, perusing anywhere you find your prospects, all the way to getting this deal completed and the dotted line signed. So our guest today is Ricky Pearl. He's joining us from halfway around the world in Melbourne, Australia. Ricky's an entrepreneur to the core. He spent his career growing businesses from the ground up. Currently CEO of Pointer, a sales as a service company. Ricky, we're really excited to have you. Give us some insight into your role and the problems that Pointer solves. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so um, I've set up Pointer. We essentially help companies that need help building that top of funnel function. That's sales development, business development, where either they do not want to have that function in-house or don't have the the capabilities yet to build that function in-house and drive it through to success. So we help companies get that done for them. Uh, But broadly, it's just an avenue for me to play in sales and do what I do, which is which is sales and love doing for other people. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's hard to get away from sales if, uh, if that's the true calling. And I think all three of us agree that's, uh, that's the rest of our careers, that's for sure. But uh, Ricky, let's, uh, let's dive right in. What deal are you walking us through today? All right. So the deal I want to talk about is a pretty large deal around um, selling of a physical product. So not the typical SaaS that you might have on here. However, it was selling to a company in the SaaS world and involved a security product, which um, which they needed to you know, facilitate their business. Like a lot of these companies have security standards that they have to meet. And this was one of the products that, that helped them achieve the security standards. Sweet. I think, uh, I don't know that we've tapped into this specifically, so should be a, a really fun one to go through. So for our listeners, you know, last time I'll mention this, but we're really trying to help reps identify the difference between awareness, research, and prospecting. Awareness, right, is where you heard about the company. The research is what info you're able to find before you reach out. And then prospecting, of course, is when you actually reach out. So, uh, Ricky, you know, where did the awareness come from and what research was conducted here? So this was a very high-level strategic approach that we took. We were taking a new security product, entering new markets. That's the role that I had with Pointer, which was opening up APAC. So we identified which kind of professionals needed this product on which kinds of projects. And we thought at that stage, everyone who is a professional in the space would want to know that this product with this capability exists. And we built lists. 
So I built a massive list of everyone who would possibly want to talk to in this space um, with the intention of in the long run also focusing on a project basis like who needs this now but at this stage with this deal that we're talking about it was still super high level just like list of security professionals in this industry so it's it's a high level list of people but the actual like uh vertical that you're going into you know that you can tackle and like you there's proven i guess pain there that you know you can solve yeah Absolutely. Like we're talking, it's a pretty generic product as far as security goes. Like, let's just say we're talking about a door. You know, you need a door that can withstand being kicked a hundred times. Right. Well, who needs that? Well, anyone who needs a high security door, right? Well, who needs high security doors? There's global standards, you know, prisons, government offices, you know, I don't know, all, all of those kinds of places. All right. Well, this is who needs high security doors. This is who we can sell high security doors to. So it is is really simpler than you think saying, oh, airports need high security doors. All right, airports are vertical. And what about police stations? They need a high security door. All right, police stations, there's a vertical. And and so we went, but it is really that broad that it, the list is at this stage, 10,000 individuals, you know, and I haven't, and, we, and we, we're still in, we're still in a single country. <laughs> Yeah. Ricky, you rattled those off pretty quick. The high security doors, you went straight to the prisons. I'm starting to sell or starting to think maybe you sold some uh, high security door, doors to prisons. <laughs> Great analogy. No, no, though, no because... not, not, not the case. But I just wanted to bring it, you know, bring it, make it tangible around it's yeah. a physical product that has a has a use case. That is, it's not everyone. It's not like a, a normal door. Well, every house in the world needs a normal door. It is still yep. within a niche, but that niche is broad enough that there's a big total addressable market. I guess let's move to the next step, right? So you've done the awareness part where you're building that list. You're doing the research. It is a tangible door like we're talking about, but not just any door, a high security door. So there is that persona, that, that pain point, that understanding of what is needed uh, when, and then in particular, at this point, you know, the prospecting side, when you, your initial outreach, and we talk about this all the time, but there's full sales podcast dedicated to just prospecting. So this will just yeah. probably be really a tap. How exactly did you get in front of this uh, prospect in particular? What are some of the details there? All right. So I'm, I'm going to like partially um, incriminate myself here. Well, no, I'm joking. It's not really, <laughs> not, not actually incriminate. Prison doors uh, are back. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I'll, I know how to break into Told a prison door. You're just going to kick it 101 times. Right. So <laughs> we had some super strict criteria within this company, how to call people, what to do. And I'm sitting here on a list of 10,000 people and I've only built up like one small country within APAC, one small vertical. I'm like, this is going to be impossible, right? So I set up my own, and I'm sure a lot of salespeople do this. I set up my own systems. So here I am, I'm setting up a sales engagement platform because this cannot get done through this company server. There's no ways. So here I'm, I'm registering a new domain that looks like the company's name, right? Like I'm going full hog here to, so that I can actually prospect and do my job. Because I know if I don't get these deals, I get fired. Mm-hmm. If, if they find out that I do this, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> but at least, at least if I do it and I succeed, everyone wins, right? Like maybe this is a better ask for uh, forgiveness than permission. Yep. To be fair, I did ask for permission and they didn't say no. So I was like, I'm just going to take that as the very, very particular shade of gray that I'm going to operate within. So I set up my own sales engagement platform and I start cold outbound. Like the list is big enough that I need to prioritize email over phone calls. And I'm just waking up every morning to replies. Yeah. Thanks, Ricky. Yes. 
happy to meet, no, don't want to meet. And so I'm, I'm like on target, I'm booking the meetings I need, things are going well. This deal, it happened to be, I think the third or fourth email that I had sent to this individual. Obviously this is automated. I didn't actually send the emails and I just get a wake up to a response saying, Hey Ricky, so sorry. Like I've just been super busy. I'm happy to meet with you next week, Tuesday. This is actually pretty good timing. And that was it, right? So that's, that's how this all started called prospecting whilst I sleep, whilst doing some nefarious activity, uh, using the, you know, techniques, the company might not necessarily approve of. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So a couple things within there, one. Kamana and I, Kamana is one of the co-founders of Pickle. Me and him have talked, if we were to go to a different company that didn't have resources, there are certain tools that I would pay out of pocket for because of the value return. One of those yeah. being like LinkedIn sales nav, right? Like I, I can literally almost do my whole job with just LinkedIn sales nav. But for you, obviously you went out, you automated, you built your own process, right? Using an engagement tool. But the thing I want to focus more so on is you're getting email responses. I'm just curious, are these email responses due to the like mass amount of people? Is it because the pain is so prevalent and it's unsolved? Like why are so many people responding? Look, this product had good fit, first of all. I think that's that's important to say that if you are a, you know, if we just look back at doors, let's just, you know, keep with that analogy because obviously <laughs> I'm under strict NDAs with this one. So yes. if you are a security professional and responsible for installing doors within prisons, then um, you're going to be interested when somebody says, hey, have you seen the latest doors? You, you might not want to buy, but as a professional in that space, you need to be on top of what technology is available, what tools are available, what's the, the current modus operandi for the current threats and risks that professionals that, the in, that are being faced. So we just went out with an education piece. We'd love to introduce you to this new product. XYZ is using it. Are you interested in why? We'd love to yeah. show it to you sometime. Like it was as simple as that. If you had to come to me as a, you know, a sales agency, and so we've got a new CRM. This is what it does. This is how it helps you. I'd be interested, even if it's not to use, even if it's not to use, even if it's just to reaffirm my current decision, I'm still interested. Yeah. Perfect product market fit, right? So if I'm just thinking, okay, if I'm an account executive and I feel like Ricky's getting a ton of responses, but I'm not, it's not necessarily the AE's fault. I just want our listeners to know, like, uh, um, uh, you know, so getting firstly, this- I mean, I run an SDR agency, right? And I am of the firm belief that if an SDR is not on target, 95% of it is not his fault. And it there would be the go. same with prospecting for an AE. 95% it's messaging. All right, well, that's a marketing problem or it's delivery. Oh, that's a technical problem. If it's effort, they're not putting in enough effort. Okay, maybe it's the, the BDRs. But most people are burning themselves to the core with effort, right? Everything else yeah. is... Is, is someone else uh, in the team that needs to be weighing in there. So absolutely, this product happened to be good, um, happened to be bloody excellent, but we do have other campaigns in general. You still just got to find what is that angle that's going to get you the response. In this case, it was education, but there are different ones that you need to, you know, tag on yeah. a different um, benefit to the individual. Perfect. And you, you wrapped it up really nice there. So at this point, you, he's responded to the cadence. You've got a meeting booked. It's game on. Tell us about the discovery experience and what you learned in discovery to help you, you know, kind of steamroll the deal or at least, you know, get yourself a win to demo. Well, well, firstly, like 
discovery was incredibly long. I just need to paint a picture on the, the decision-making framework here first to try to put this all into perspective. <laughs> the person I'm now talking to, we would call the client. They own the facility being built, but they are building it on behalf of another company who's going to tenant it. And this tenant is the only tenant at this facility and the biggest customer for this client who's building this facility. Mm -hmm. And so the tenant themselves actually have a lot more say than this client. Because if that tenant says jump, <laughs> this client says how high. Right? But I'm dealing with this client. On top of that, this client is just the money behind the build. They're going to put it onto a, another building company who will have a design and construct contract to build the facility. And so they are actually the decision maker, can say yes or no to everything, land up paying the checks, signing the contracts, signing the deals. So that's this complex framework. I'm now talking to the client. On this call with the client, they bring in two security consultants, one for them and one for the tenant. So this is this first call, <laughs> like this first introductory disco call. And what has happened, I discover, is that the tenant has signed with this client to build this facility. Within that process, like somewhere in the six months that since they've signed, the tenant has upgraded their security standards. And now they're saying to their client, we need you to change your security standards at this facility or we can't be tenanted there anymore. And this tenant's now like, shit, right? Like this is yeah. a spanner in the work. So my email happened to hit his inbox at the right time. Like we could call it dumb luck. I just call it the lack of scale, but I happened to find the right person at the right time. And this is what I discovered. He has to, they have to change their standards away from what they were doing a lot closer to what we offer. So we straight away, like we are in with a good shot here. Yeah. Either they will be using our product or a competitor's product exactly like ours, but they are now in the market for a specification like this. And the client is saying we have to do these security upgrades because we don't want to lose the tenant. Yeah, right? absolutely. Right. So that, that's would... exactly what they're doing. The tenant did still give them a few options of like how they could achieve it. But of those few options, this was like quickly highlighted as the most beneficial and the most economical. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's why they have to do it. They've got this client of theirs who's going to tenant this facility. And this is their biggest client that if they don't make happy, they lose the clients, which would be devastating to their business. So this client has said, we want this change. Although they've already contracted, although they're already halfway through a deal, they kind of have to say yes. Yeah, because they're already six months into this. So yeah. to lose, well, for you to lose, right, the, the client would really suck. But the client themselves, to lose this particular tenant, a massive impact to the yeah, organization. Yeah, absolutely devastating. Absolutely. And they couldn't. Right. So this was almost, it was a given they are upgrading to this tenant's new standard, but the tenant yeah. very cleverly, because they have really robust global procurement standards, doesn't say, Hey, you have to buy from Ricky. He's our supplier. They say you need to buy for use this door analogy, a door that looks like this and feels like that and operates in this particular way and can achieve this general outcome. And so they keep it very loose and vague so that they are not hard specifying a supplier so that they are allowing a competitive process. So they define an outcome rather than a product, right? So like there's still a lot of work here to prove that we can meet this outcome because these procurement standards are designed quite specifically to avoid corruption, to avoid preferred suppliers winning deals, to avoid a whole host of you know bad app elements that go into procurements. And we now have to, to navigate this in a very challenging way. 
because we've got a client who has really robust standards and operating. You could imagine if you building billions of dollars worth of facilities for a client who has even more billions worth of dollars to pay for these things, there mm -hmm. are layers of, of procurement processes, layers of bureaucracy, layers of decision maker that are so thick that as a small business to try integrate and, and navigate was a challenge. So as we're going through discovery, they are just layering on. Yes, there's a need. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like that, that was so basic. That was like the first five minutes. Now they start bringing in the complexities of this need, you know, um, so you maybe are, you know, technically still in discovery, you're still trying to learn and understand what it is that they need to solve this problem. What, but what they need isn't just a product. They need a product that can be delivered in such a way with this kind of guarantee, with these kind of warranties, with this kind of contract agreements, like the, their requirements are so thick that it was overwhelming. Yeah. Okay, Taylor, before you jump in with your next question, I just want to take a quick pause. AEs that are listening, go back to the last like five minutes, I don't know, two minutes, however long it's been, and just listen to the way that Ricky talks about this deal. You can tell that he is like such an intricate piece and part of the discovery. Like he understands it so well. So when you walk out of your discoveries, like think, you know, could I go and explain this to a friend in a way that they will understand just the pain that my prospects have. Yeah. So as junior kind of prefaced that, that concept of multiple discovery meetings, deeply understanding the problem. I mean, you really can't move forward until that happens, but at some point something has to happen. Either we're walking away from the deal or let's move forward. What's the next step. And typically, you know, in the software SaaS world, I know you're selling to a, a SaaS client here or a software client, but, and most of our listeners, it's a, it's a quick demo, one meeting, typical software demo where you're just showing off a platform. But here it's a physical product, right? We're talking about the, the doors, back to that analogy, but <laughs> some similarities, uh, but a, a ton of differences, right? So understanding the pains that you've picked up throughout discovery and the problem that you're addressing, how are you kind of uh, you know fitting in that, that shoehorn door, your, your door in particular yeah. as the perfect uh, solution but more importantly, how do you just not get lost along the way with all of those uh, different decision makers um, and individuals that you met with? We are having to, to drive this now because the one thing I realized is in this new specification, this client that we are now working with doesn't know a lot. This is new to them. And that was my opportunity. I could be an advisor, a consultant. I could help hold their hand through this process and make sure that they're giving their tenant what their tenant wanted, because that is ultimately what they were trying to achieve here. They didn't care. They were happy with their old specification. The old specification was cheaper. So all they're trying to do here is make their client happy who's going to tenant this facility. So I helped them achieve that. So that was what I realized very quickly, like this is what I need to do. Um, so I'd ask them the question, hey, I know you're changing to this specification, but are they interested in A or B? And my client would obviously, I don't know, because this is new to me. So I could help them go back and say, hey, you know, we've, we've worked in this. Are you, do you want A or B? And that'd be, oh, that's actually a very good question. We haven't considered this yet because this is a new upgraded specification for us too. And all of a sudden, like through the questions that I could ask, I was changing the, the way that everyone was thinking about this product because they've all just upgraded conceptually to an outcome that I am the expert in. You know, so it, that is like where this real, the momentum for this deal started to shift was in the way I could ask questions that made them deep down 
feel like I don't know the answer. I'm so happy Ricky knows the answer. Like he's asking this question because he knows, and he's just given me both options. And now he gave me a third option. He's told me why option A is the best. Let me take this back to the tenant. Like they were fully empowered just through our discovery process to refine their spec. I think the, you, we mentioned this off, off air, but um, you know, we were talking about the, the timing of this conversation too, that made it a little more complex in that. I don't know if you mentioned it, but uh, it was kind of in the middle of 2020, right? Or, or middle of COVID uh, that threw in some complications, even more so uh, for a physical product where most of the time they're looking, touching, feeling. Uh, Could well, you yeah, imagine it? It's like, it's, it's literally like, it's like watching a cooking show. Yeah, yeah. That, that was it. It's like selling, selling food by watching a cooking <laughs> show. We're like, look at this, look at this beautiful door. You know, feel it. It's so hard. You know, look at me hitting it. It doesn't bend. And obviously that's not enough. Like these are, these are absolute industry professionals, top of the game. The companies we're working with hired excellent people who made good decisions. So I had to, through this demo process, and this was at a stage of COVID that the will, like the Suez Canal was blocked. Like I couldn't even ship product for them to fill. Mm. So this whole deal is like going on right at the, like, they can't see this product, but they have to deliver. So they kind of understand now they're making a decision, you know, this is the reality they're in, but having to convey um, this trust in the product virtually was a whole new skill. And we had to like bring in social proof or technical proof or some other way to help convince them that this wasn't a sales pitch that we are over exaggerating or overstating. We had to be able to prove in some way, every statement that we made. And that was like a, a real unique thing, having to build trust remotely, but then also having to build trust vicariously. Cause at this stage, I haven't spoken to a single person at the tenant, no one. I don't even know who it is. All I know is it's like one of the biggest companies in the world. And from the feedback I'm getting, They've got lots of questions, lots of bureaucracy, lots of like different ways of doing things. Like it's not going to be easy to influence them, but I've never met. So um, yeah, this was like a, a layer of demo that really set me up for learning like how to build trust quickly, but not through personal rapport and personal relationships, but by, by showing trust in that product. And very often that was about talking about the product's weaknesses. If I say, hey, my door can withstand 100 kicks. People were like, okay, that's nice. But if I say, look, if you kick this door 101 times, it will fail. They're like, oh, that's, that's blatant. Like, that's honest. Right? <laughs> like, you believe that because we have yeah. this negative bias. So if I tell you this door will break on 101 kicks, but it won't break before, you're like, it's believable. But if I say, no, this door can withstand 100 kicks, kick it as hard as you want 100 times, won't break. You're like, oh, that's like this. It's harder to believe. I'm saying the exact same thing. One's believable, one's not easy to believe. And I had to like learn to do that pretty quickly on these things to build trust. And I've carried that with me moving forward. Like talk about the weaknesses and people will believe it. Yeah. Talk about the weaknesses in a way that highlights the strength. That's a mastercraft, honestly, a, a true mastercraft to be able to do that. Ricky, like, honestly, this whole deal seems like nothing but a barrier, <laughs> like a barrier for your client because now they have to upgrade a barrier for you, like, you know, selling into COVID and then trying to like get your grasp on there's so many, you know, decision makers and layers here. So, you know, just talk about some of the barriers, some more of the major barriers, if you will. 
a few of the, the big barriers, right? So as you mentioned, we started with the barrier of, I couldn't even prospect given my company's strict systems. Like everything has had to be overcome. The big barriers now were multiple stakeholders. I'm talking like the tenant had a committee, our clients had a committee, the end builder who was going to essentially give us the contract who would have been our client had a committee. And these committees have come together to form committees. So there's like, you know, committees reporting into committees, reporting into decision makers, mapping out the decision-making process was extremely difficult. Then understanding the paper process that was going to be on the back of it, extremely difficult. On top of that, mapping out the, the system requirements were difficult because it was a moving feast. But what happened over time was because I was this advisor helping drive this deal forward, I think in they, their mind, they realized, because bear in mind, they still have a deadline. They still have to deliver an outcome. I think they realized their only way to get there was with me rather than by themselves. And they didn't even entertain bringing on a competitor because if they were then trying to, like, they would have to be in the driver's seat to, um, to push two competitors against each other, but they didn't even know where to push. Right. So, um, that started putting us in the driver's seat and changed momentum. And then there was a lot of position movement. This is a three year deal in an enterprise clients where people are moving jobs every two months, every three months, every six months, or staying at the company, just moving on to a different portfolio. By the end of this, like one year in, I'm the last man standing. Like everyone's new on this deal, barring a few people. And they were saying, like, we get to a meeting and I would be saying, so look, we met on this topic three months ago. You know, John, who's um, now since moved on, was leaning towards specification A. Peter, who's also now moved on, was leaning towards specification B. And this is the document that we now need to review to make a decision between those two. Here I am driving that, right? When um, yeah, I, I'm the supplier. Like, I'm like, <laughs> become, yeah, this, this is not roles, my job. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is not my job. I don't get paid these high, these top dollar consulting fees. Like give that to me on top of it. Uh, but, but those things started shifting momentum when I realized I was no longer a supplier. I'm now part of the team trying to deliver a product and deliver an outcome. And, and really that all changed. So in my mind, like halfway through this deal, like a year into this deal, the deal was done in that they wanted to use our product and it was mine to lose. Things still could have blown it out, blown it up, like global supply issues with COVID. The, the companies could just change their strategy. Oh, you know what? We're not building this facility anymore. We're putting it on hold for two years. Like all of these things could still happen, but provided all of those things, which were completely out of my control, not occurring in this deal moving forward, it was 100% mine to win or lose. I want to pull you back to where you were saying, you know, people were transitioning in and out of the deal. I think the really big lesson there too is that the people, especially in this instance, were not the problem. The problem was going to exist whether the people, you know, were transitioning jobs or not. They needed a solution. And because you understood so well, had driven the whole process, like really dove into discovery, like it didn't matter who came into the driver's seat because you could bring everyone up to speed. And the problem was not the people, the yeah. problem was the situation. And, and the more you get into enterprise, I think the more you'll find this is the case. Like that transactional sale can be personality-based. I've got on with Peter, that's why I wanna buy from Peter. This was mm. a big corporate problem that needed a big corporate solution. 
no one person in fact if you had to ask these companies who makes the decision they wouldn't even be able to bloody tell you right like the decision making <laughs> is so convoluted no one person was bigger than this outcome and everyone just had to work towards the right outcome and trying to do like really difficult things like the companies that are pushing these boundaries they've set up these processes for a reason they're not there because they want bureaucracy and that's what you need to understand to get that one layer behind why are they making decisions this way is it often it's risk avoidance they want the best decision and having more people involved in that decision will produce the right decision which ultimately better if you compile and compound good decisions on top of good decisions on top of good decisions you land up getting the best outcomes that's how good companies win by clever people making good decisions to do good things so they've set up the system that way. I can't circumvent their process that they've built. I just have to leverage it and work within it to achieve a good outcome. So I just became, and they never appointed me yet, I just became a member of their committee. Hey, I, use my product or not, I'm gonna help you get this outcome that you want. I happen to think the right solution is mine, but at any stage, if you find that it's not, that there's a different one, no problem. Absolutely no problem. Obviously I'm close to the action, and I can still help influence the, the topics. I mean, at this stage, I'm setting the bloody agenda at these, at these meetings. So it was never going to be another product. But I think, yeah, that is just so, so core to it. There was no one person. The very, very first person once put on a really great South African accent. And we connected straight away on the back of that, like just some quick rapport building. And maybe that helped on like getting from that first email through to Disco. But other than that, like, I happen to be lucky or happen to have good rapport with one individual. After that, this could have just been, I mean, this was by and large just names on an email list. And I'm talking like big email lists and like 30 people yeah. on email chains backwards and forwards. Like I, I didn't know half of these people. Obviously we, we've touched on it, but just to recap, so everybody understands, you know, walk us through just a quick timeline again, um, you know, start to finish, how long this took and really also dive into the behind the scenes part, the part that, not necessarily the conversations uh, in person or, or the demonstrations, the big discovery, uh, but more or less the deal management, the nitty gritty. How did you stay sane and stay focused and stay sure. organized uh, throughout this? So this is a big deal, right? Like this is just one deal uh, for one of these facilities, which if we're able to change the specification, we are then more likely to be the specification on the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. So if we were to retain this client, for 10 years, you're talking, you know, potentially $100 million. If we were just to keep them on a few deals, you know, tens of millions. So it's still great sized deals. There's no lock-in contracts here. This was um, you're at the design phase where they're building physical products. So you're engaging professionals often before they've gotten planning and approvals. They're in a design. And if you wanted to design a house, for example, from the time you're talking to your architect, or you're buying the land till the time you land up walking in the door it can be two years. So this is the same on these products. It's a two to three year deal cycle. Um, so extremely long and at no point at this, up until you get that order two and a half years later, at no point up until then, are you contracted in or are you guaranteed revenue? So this was maybe probably by the end of it, probably up to a thousand emails backwards and forwards. And these emails are threads, right? There's, there's the, the tenant, there's the client, then there's the actual builder who's going to be placing the order. 
Um, they all have their committees all on these email threads. There's no common Slack. We're all in different time zones, different countries, different continents. So this is all being done by email and Teams meetings. You know, and so I probably had two Teams meetings a week and thousands of emails every week for two years, for the whole of the pandemic. And at still at, up until this point, there's no guarantee of revenue. Until you get that order, they could just pull this project at any given stage. Yeah, that was probably, to, to keep track of all of it, you, know, you could just imagine the clients. Ricky, what's the forecast? What's the pipeline? It's either a oh $100 million or zero. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's the likelihood of this deal coming through? I'm like, well, it's a yes or a no. So I'd give that 50-50. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it is, you know, so, and I'm obviously trying to work other deals here. This isn't my, you know, I need to keep like yeah. money coming in more consistently to help fund the, the deals like this. Yeah, I, I built, I landed up building out like a project page on Notion, again, not company endorsed. So I had like my own CRM where I'm keeping everything. I, I'm now still using, funnily enough, this domain that I had set up for my prospecting is what landed up just becoming like their default domain. So all of this isn't even like, this is like completely rogue, this whole deal <laughs> um, in so many ways. But my company was on um, Office 365 and I was prospecting off Google. I was like, oh, this Google inbox is just so much better. I, I just stuck with it. So like, I'm just keeping this all coordinated and consolidated. And this, this project page that I had built out on Notion over two and a half years probably became like, one of the best resources for this whole project that we could refer to decisions that were being made, minutes of meetings, recordings of meetings, email chains, everything. I had to win this deal on sheer professionalism and expertise. Like that's all that I had going in, in any of this. And yeah, by the end of it, like obviously it's, it, it landed up paying off, you know, it landed up paying off very well that we the default specification for that client, but now also the default specification for that tenant, right? So like it's, yeah. it's huge. Like a, and because that client, that tenant is like industry leading, it's become the now kind of like everyone's trying to live up to, to their, them trailblazing a path. Everyone else is trying to like, you know, be like them. And so now we're picking up the second tier and the third tier all because of it. So it's been completely game changing for a company now in this new vertical, but yeah, like this whole way through, it was two and a half years worth of working and, and power to the company that were, you know, supplying the product to have faith in backing a project for two and a half years. Could you imagine not getting results as an account executive for two and a half years, what your, your weekly standups and, and forecast reports must look <laughs> Still like? Still nothing. What's your forecast report for May? <laughs> Still nothing. Zero. Yeah. You know, what's it for June? Zero. What's it for July? Zero. What are you working towards? Well, in two and a half years from now, I might have a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Like that's, that's it. And they were just like incredible management, like, you know, still kept the foot on the gas, but, and the pressure was always on, but they understood complex deals like this. And yeah, like it, it I, I had to bring it through as a, as a, as a one man show. <laughs> Insane deal. I mean, right. Two years, thousands of emails, two meetings a week for those two years. Timeline on this is crazy. I think to ask, you know, what three sales tips you have would fall short, but what three sales tips yeah. do you have? 
I think this was like a case, firstly, multi-threading, knowing everyone on the project was critical, but then also understanding for each person, it's not just multi-threading, hey, I've spoken to Junior. No, you've got to understand each person that you multi-thread with, what is their motivation? What piece are they trying to solve within this puzzle? What's driving their decisions? So that you can actually satisfy that person that you've multi-threaded with. Like just multi-threading for the sake of multi-threading won't get you there. That was the first thing. The second thing is understanding the genuine decision-making process. They're, in this case, the decision-maker, the actual decision-maker I had no access to. The closest I got to talking to anyone there was a consultant that they had hired to sit in on this project from a third-party risk consulting company. That's the closest I got to this, to this actual decision-maker. But I understood that. And so I had to put my filters up in such a way that I could understand what was coming back and how their decisions were being made. And, you know, when I bounced it off the wall, like when, I when the decision got bounced off them, which way it was going to decide what I had to send up the chain the next time. So understanding genuine decision-making process is critical. And the last thing is understanding the motivating factors for decision-making. The product that we were selling was not directly tied to the service delivery or the service outcome for this client. So if we're talking, you're a chili piper and you're selling to a company that is, they sell a, a widget. Is the, the product that you're delivering to them part of the product that they're delivering to their customers? Does it help them deliver that product? Um, if it's a sales product, absolutely there'll always be a lot of intrinsic interest in it. If it's part of their core delivery, there'll be intrinsic interest. This was an ancillary product. This is a door, right? Like they, they do not sell doors. They do not deliver door related products. Uh, they deliver a, a service of which has to be housed within a secure facility for which they needed. This was completely ancillary to the function they delivered. And so this was purely about risk avoidance. All they wanted to do was tick a box and make a good decision and not be held accountable if something went wrong. That was it. And understanding that allowed us to position everything we did through that lens and that resonated. So they didn't care that this was the best. They cared that someone on the same line as them or above them thought that it was the best and made that decision for them and that they could take that as a statement of fact and move forward, but they could point the finger somewhere else. So that's, I think the third tip. So multi-threading, understanding decision-making process and understanding motivating decision factors like risk avoidance, or is it for a particular outcome that they're looking to achieve is very important. And not enough professionals sell on that avoiding risk layer. They're always about uh, delivering a positive outcome. Sometimes removing a negative outcome is, is more motivating to an individual. Man, this was a conversation. <laughs> I'm really glad that we walked through this pretty slow. I will say this might be our longest podcast episode. This was a, this was a three year deal. It's hard to summarize in, 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 in any 50 amount minutes, of time. Yeah, you know, minutes, and I could yeah. go on for an hour on any one piece of it, but I think there's a lot of takeaways for account executives in, yeah. in process. You know, um, hopefully they're not going to take the lesson of go build your own sales engagement platform. Um, leave that bit, but the rest of it, if, if you found any of it useful and interesting, then that was great. Go connect with Ricky Pearl on LinkedIn. Th thanks so much for joining us, Ricky. Thanks for having me on. Another episode of How I Deal is in the books. If you enjoyed this, please let us know through Spotify, Apple, wherever you consume your podcast. 
Um, and please, please, please uh, drop us four, five, six stars, you know, whatever, uh, whatever you feel like giving us. But uh, we, we do this for, for account executives and hopefully find it educational. But thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time.